You were tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It's been 24 hours since Mayor Rick Blangiardi announced a plan to pause rail two stops short of Alamoana Shopping Center. The proposal would end at the Civic Center station at Halekuila and South Streets, which uh, would serve a key area of government workers in the Capital District. Here's the mayor. While our recovery plan will propose to adjust the east side terminus to the Civic Center station in Kakalako, which will allow the city to receive full federal funds per the FFGA funds, which have not been released since 2017, we still believe in a future connection someday of rail to UH Manoa. But for now, we must move forward with a project that is functional and within the city's financial means. You know, it took a lot of work by many professionals to get to this place. But in the end, the numbers dictate the strategy. And this strategy makes sense for Oahu residents, transit riders, and taxpayers. And following the State of the City address, we got this reaction from a listener on our talkback line. My name is Suzanne McClure. I live in Glenwood on the Big Island, and I have a comment about that rail. I agree and commend Mayor Belangiardi for his proposal to shorten the embroiled rail by about 1.2 miles. In my opinion, he is one man in Oahu government that is using what God gave him, his brain. The rail is hopelessly way over budget. It just makes sense. Thank you. And we also got this email from a Kaneohe resident. Please tell Mayor Rick, no way on stopping the rail short of Ala Moana. Some of us opposed this boondoggle from the beginning because we feared the expense and mistakes that have plagued this project from the start. And now he wants to renege on the promise of the rail going to Ala Moana. So wrong. Please get it done right instead of creating even more problems by dropping passengers in the middle of nowhere. No one wants to be dropped off at South and Halekuila. Sincerely, uh, Michelle Grotstein. And, you know, to better understand how that idea of stopping at the Civic Center might work for bus riders, we spoke with Roger Morton, Department of Transportation Services Director for the city. Morton also sits on the heart board and used to head the Oahu Transit Services, which operates the bus. So he knows the issues well. We reached him yesterday afternoon in Washington, D.C., where he was attending a transit conference. We've got a good plan. We've tested it. We've modeled it. It's a robust plan, and I'm confident that it will provide access to all of our major destinations that are east of uh, Civic Center. So walk us through this plan. How does this work? Because a lot of bus drivers, you know, end there at Ala Moana Center. Yeah, and, and many of the routes will still end there, but we will have a robust network so that there is a connection. You know, Catherine, most of the buses that end at Alamoana Center are long-distance buses for which we hope that people will be riding rail. And so a lot of it will be just connecting the, you know, the routes that we have at Alamoana that are going to places like UH or Waikiki uh, or Kaimaki uh, or East Oahu. So a lot of it is is a lot easier than than it sounds. So we've we've made adjustments to uh, what what were our planned uh, bus routes. We we lose a little uh, ridership in our model, uh, but not a whole not a whole bunch. Well, how how is our ridership? Has it bounced back since the pandemic? You mean a ridership on the buses? We're tracking yes. we're tracking the national average, and I was I just had a national convention where ridership has recovered to 63% of pre-COVID and is rising now as our economy transitions back and more and more people are coming back to work. In Honolulu, we were at at 62% when I left Honolulu a week ago, uh, and we have the same experience that our ridership has been edging up week by week. And so the idea is that you might lose some ridership uh, with the switch over to the uh, Civic Center, uh, but you think that'll be made up by what people are using rail? Well, I think that uh, compared to other cities of our size, that our ridership will be phenomenal uh, in terms of rail and bus. And I'm not sure, you know, how the whole... Uh, idea of of not continuing on to Ala Moana if some of those you know high rises that got the 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 height limit raised and the density uh, you know if that's if they're no longer considered in the TOD area. 
Well, just one thing to make sure everybody understands is that uh, Heart, the Heart Board, uh, are are committed to going all the way to Ala Moana. What has changed here has been our, our our contract with the city, with the FDA, that we're proposing to stop two short two two stops short, because that's all the funding that we have. Uh, but we are committed to getting to Ala Moana at one time, at some time, and oh. hopefully, uh, you know, as we as we progress toward Civic Center and downtown. Oh, so then there could be an additional phase, potentially. Yes. Ah, okay. And then uh, I guess maybe walk us through. I mean, lots of people would love to have this go to the University of Hawaii Manoa campus. Uh, And that still remains the locally preferred option to get to uh, the University of Hawaii. And so making that work with the buses stopping at Civic Center for now? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a for now. I mean, we're building rail for 100 years. Uh, and, you know, if if the experience of other cities is the same in Honolulu, that'll mean that extensions will come in, in bursts and spurts. They're never continuous. They're, they're always over the long haul. I mean, cities that had started rail in 1950s are still expanding it. Okay, so the goal remains the same. It's just Absolutely. that it's just that uh, we're doing this uh, in increments. What we can afford what now. What we can afford, and, and you know, as, with with the money that we have, what we are uh, saying is that we can deliver a viable, workable, excellent transit system, even if we stop it at Civic Center for an interim period, or or maybe. Maybe the the stars will line up and we'll be able to get all the way to Alamoana. But if we pause at at Civic Center for a while, we have a robust bus system that will connect up there well. And as far as, uh, gosh, the the plan to go to more of an electric fleet, I don't know. Mm -hmm. How how would that work in with this plan? Any changes there? You know, one one of the top priorities for DTS and for the city is to electrify transportation, not just the buses, but the municipal, you know, the municipal vehicles in in, in DFM and in other departments, and and not only in the city, but statewide through the energy policies in the state. So we're committed. I can tell you that uh, in the last two days, we have received two additional grants for electrification. We received one grant for 4.7 million in a competitive procurement, a competitive grant uh, solicitation uh, from the Federal Transit Administration. We were one of, I think, 35 cities. And we also received $10 million in, in electrification uh, funding under the, 20, the 2022 Appropriations Bill, which the President signed today. I believe he signed it today. So we have that. We have a we we have the prospect in the future of uh, vastly higher um, f- funding amounts that are being earmarked for electrification. So it's certainly one of my personal goals to try to electrify as quickly as we can. But having said that, realistically, this is a decades-long uh, all-of-city effort. Our infrastructure is being provided by the Department of Design and Construction. They are, they are, we're trying to find funding for them, but they are the people who are tasked with designing the charging stations and supervising the construction. So it is an all-of-city effort to do this, and infrastructure has to come first. And can you talk more about the route from the Civic Center to Ala Moana, the bus routes? Well, you know, as in Honolulu, we have numerous routes that we'll, we'll do that. We have several, but we, but for you know, we we'll, we will plan on having a semi-express service to University of Hawaii. We plan on having service to Waikiki through both Alamoana and through Kawakawa, and we have a robust plan that uh, uh, that will uh, get people uh, to Alamoana to the Kiamoko, you know, uh, area uh, where we're. we're seeing a lot of development there as well. 
uh, and through Kakaako. So we're confident that we're going to have a robust, a robust uh, and a workable transit system. Okay, so you don't see then this pause in any way affecting the long-term future of those high-rises that are going up on Keomoku? I mean, they're all, they're, no. they will be part of the, the TOD, the Transit Orient Development. I, I, I honestly don't. We're going to get as far as South Street right now at Civic Center. We're committed. That was Roger Morton, City Transportation Services Director and Hart Board member. Uh, he tells us that he's confident that this new proposal is a workable plan that would dovetail with bus services. Morton met with the Federal Transit Authority in Washington, D.C., along with the mayor and Hart CEO, Lori Kahikina. We continue to turn the rail plan over and over again on today's Reality Check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Marcel Henri on the line today. Good morning. Hey, Catherine. How's it going? Good. Uh, I mean, I don't know if that announcement surprised you, but, you know, we didn't get our, our uh, embargoed copy in the morning, so uh, it surprised us. Yeah, you know, I mean, this might be a little inside baseball, but I started to wonder when we didn't get our embargoed copy of the speech. You know, there there have been signs kind of pointing to the possibility that they would be uh, looking at a, a trimmed plan like this. So, yeah, when they, they, they really have been kind of keeping that state of the city address close to the sleeve. And so when the mayor did announce, you know, trimming uh, about a mile and a quarter in two stations, um, in some ways it's kind of, you know, a it's really kind of shocking to hear, but also not surprising at the same time. Yeah, and it just triggered so many questions. You know, I, I was trying to, you know, get that out of uh, Roger Morton, uh, you know, to be real clear on the TOD district and, uh, you know, and how are we going to work the routes over to UH? Is it going to be better? Yeah, I know you, you did a good job pressing for details, but these there are so many questions right now, so many things in play. Um, and yeah, uh, certainly not the least of it being that all those, you know, the you've got 40, 40 story uh, towers. Uh, I think it's the Sky Tower that's going up across from Ala Moana Center right now. You've got, I, I believe it's called uh, Azure on uh, Ka'eomoku mm-hmm. uh, just up the, the road, uh, Central Ala Moana. All of these, these, um, uh, towers and developments and projects that receive these special variances uh, in, in anticipation of rail. And yeah, you listen to, to what Roger's saying. I mean, they, they are still hopeful and confident that it will eventually make it to Ala Moana Center. But the announcement yesterday basically just throws a lot more uncertainty into what happens to the TOD and, and planning designs past Halakawila, you know, Halakawila Place is basically where it stops now, which is that uh, Stanford Carr uh, Kamehameha Schools development uh, over by uh, our Kaka'ako and all that. So there's that whole element of it. Then you've got the FTA. You know, the the mayor just came back from Washington, D.C. Uh, it sounds like uh, Hart CEO Lori Kahikina and Roger are still over there. Uh, but the FTA is going to have to sign off on this proposal because it's still a proposal. For it to work, they're going to have to agree to trimming the line. And this is after years of saying, no, we are not going to agree to you trimming the line. And until you show us how that you have a way, that you have the means and the funding to build all the way to Alabama Center, we're not going to release the rest of your federal funding, which is critical to the mayor's plan. So that's just a couple of things that really have to, you know, we, we need more uh, details and things to shake out. Uh, we'll know more. Probably sometime after June 30th, which is when uh, the the city and Hart have to submit their recovery plan to the FTA, and then the FTA will eventually respond after that. Uh, so, but it just yeah, there's there's so much uncertainty. Yeah, and I'd be curious to see what the folks that were uh, calling uh, on uh, you know stopping rail at Middle Street think about this. Uh, you know, but yeah. Lots of questions. I mean, I don't really know what a, a semi-express bus is. I always thought it was express or not. Right. You know. Right. Uh, yeah. How, how does that all work? So it just seems like there's a lot yeah. more questions than than answers at this stage. 
Absolutely, because you know, to that point, uh, when a lot of people pejoratively say, you know, and and the, the debate of where the rail should go and where it should stop and why isn't it going to UH Manoa yet? They say, well, Ala Moana is critical. It's a central bus transit hub. You know, it circulates so many routes there, and to now start throwing in, you know, well, it's semi express and this and that. I mean. It's just a huge change to basically say we are going to have a new terminus that is not this this critical uh, endpoint that we've been uh, pressing for all these years. And the other wonky thing that struck me was the uh, I guess the pause on the uh, Pearl Highlands uh, parking structure that's supposed to serve the Central Oahu folks. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the, that's sixteen hundred parking spaces. Um, you know, the line is supposed to feed uh, all those folks coming from North Shore and Central Oahu. And the the mayor, frankly, kind of downplayed the need for that uh, structure. It would cost three hundred thirty million, so they are going to defer it and kind of come back to it later. Yeah, and but they did say that it was going to cost an inordinate amount for just a few parking spaces. Crazy prices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot of money, and they're saying not enough bang for the buck. They're going to do some value engineering, and uh, I don't know. We'll see where the, this all takes us. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, Marcel. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Marcel Henri with today's Reality Check. Uh, to read his coverage on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. You know, in an unusual move, the Navy announced it's beginning a new probe into what led to the fuel-contaminated tap water connected to the military's water system. You know, HVR pressed for why the original investigative report wasn't being released publicly and whether any disciplinary action had been taken. Uh, it did acknowledge that the DOD on Friday issued a list of new postings. It's part of its regular reassignments, but has not yet provided anything more about whether anyone has been disciplined. In a statement released yesterday, the Navy said that an admiral was being brought in to oversee this second review of actions taken following last year's leaks. It's that doubt that has damaged trust with Navy officials at different levels. And this morning, we look at the strained relations between the U.S. military and the Native Hawaiian community. HPR's Kuvehi Hiraishi joins us today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Native Hawaiians uh, have a long history of, of distrust when it comes to the U.S. military's stewardship, really, of, of natural and cultural resources uh, from their involvement in the 1893 overthrow of the Hawaiian Kingdom. We also think of Koholawe and the bombing there, and now Red Hill. And so the water contamination crisis on uh, Red Hill has really helped to highlight that history. And, and at the heart of that conflict is that sort of well-documented history of, of stewardship or poor stewardship, I should say, of uh, Hawaii's natural and cultural resources. Uh, this uh, embattled relationship was perhaps most prominently illustrated with the protests of Native Hawaiians on uh, the bombing of Ko'olawe. Right. Uh, University of Hawaii Ethnic Studies professor Daviana McGregor, one of the founding members of the Protect Koholawe Ohana, pointed out that one exercise in particular led to the irreparable damage of the island's aquifer. Hmm. And so the, it was this uh, attempt to, I think, mimic an atomic a bombing by by using TNT, which um, is said to have uh, kind of hit through the the cap rock in the aquifer, and so McGregor, you know, she she noted that repairing this sort of environmental damage brought on by the militarization of Koholawe is really long term work, and this is relevant to our conversations about Red Hill, uh, because still on Ko'olawe, about one quarter of that island is has not been cleared of unexploded ordnance, right? And so if we want to use these spaces again and heal this land, uh, there's still a lot of work to do there. We can imagine what that means for our aquifer here in terms of the long-term uh, impact to, to our water, to our drinking water. And this is, you know, uh, this kind of confounds uh, Native Hawaiians whose ancestors have sustained themselves in these islands for centuries, in large part because of the way they've stewarded the aina and, and the kai and their survival depended largely on that reciprocal relationship with the natural world. And that's something uh, that when uh, in view of how the military uh, has used uh, the land in certain circumstances and the abuse of some of that natural resources, um, you know, it, it's sort of 
is it's a shock uh, for jarring, some native Hawaiians. Yeah. Uh, but what sets, I think, a Red Hill apart from past battles Native Hawaiians have had with the U.S. military, uh, according to UH professor and Oahu water protector Kamana Beamer, you know, is that this time Native Hawaiians aren't the only ones uh, speaking up and, and, and joining in this fight. Uh, they've uh, been joined by military families who've been impacted, unfortunately, by by what's going on uh, in Red Hill. Uh, here's Beamer. Now, as, as Kanaka, we have a longer, complex history, and, you know, the Navy has never earned our trust. But in, on this issue, on Red Hill, you know, it really made everyone realize the impacts of militarism of our island. So in that sense, I think this is a really pivotal moment um, for all of Hawaii to, to sit back and think about, does our future have to be dependent on potentially poisoning our resources and bombing our islands for our economic survival? Absolutely not. And I think these questions on military's role in our economy and in our island's future is, is being debated and questioned, rightfully so. Oahu water protector Helani Sonoropole uh, also echoed that that sentiment. She says, you know, she's been working with military families in light of what's been happening up on Red Hill, and and she's been having conversations about the impacts of militarization of Hawaii with these families. Uh, but those are those are the kinds of discussions that that are coming out of this experience, and you know, you've got. Uh, Professor McGregor saying, you know, we've been saying this for years. We're glad people are, are jumping on board. Uh, but all of this, of course, is happening as the state considers uh, the long-term leases held by the U.S. military in Makua, Pohakuloa, Kahuku, uh, which are currently set to expire in 2029. So we'll see what impact the Red Hill situation uh, may have on those conversations. Yeah, and you know, when you just think back over the decades, you know, with the Sierra Club saying, look, this isn't Pono, you know, Malama the Aina, and there's just too much risk here. And I think, you know, Ernie Lau had, had thanked the Kanaka Maoli for, for stepping up and being so, uh, ha- ha- making sure that their presence is known, you know, at the gates, at the at the um, front gates of the bases, and, and just to echo what folks have been saying. Right. It's it's a practice that has been going on for decades. Um, I, I think what we've seen, too, in this, uh, in the conversations that are coming out of this situation is that there, uh, we all have a, a lot more in common in terms of the finite resources that we all depend upon here in the islands. And hoping to bring the U.S. military along, there's a lot of good work that you know, some do do uh, in terms of uh, helping with natural resources and invasive species on bases. Um, and some of that money does uh, help to go towards that. But the overall sort of understanding of that reciprocal relationship is something that I think um, perhaps could be shared by all to, to help us survive here. Yeah, but definitely looking at those leases with a different lens. Exactly. And, and, you know, the timing is quite ironic in that sense. But uh, hopefully these conversations will lead to sort of solutions that perhaps can be input into that, into those talks. All right. All right. But thank you so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. We've been talking to reporter Kuvehi Hirishi. To read more of her stories, go to hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha Care, a Hawaii health plan specializing in Medicaid health insurance, committed to the health of Hawaii's communities. AlohaCare.org. As our world opens back up, you can count on HPR to be there with you every step of the way. From in depth news coverage to the best in classical and contemporary music, HPR's got you covered. And we can't do this without you. Support the programs you rely on by becoming an HPR member with a monthly gift of $10. Donate today at hawaiipublicradio.org or tap the Donate button in the HPR app.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Outrigger Hotels and Resorts, committed to guest and employee safety, while also featuring the Malama Hawaii Experience, offering hands-on cultural learning in Malama Ka'aina, caring for the land. Outrigger.com. What's an ombudsman to do? On The Long View, we examine why the pandemic is forcing us to examine areas affecting our most vulnerable population. We need to do better. Our contributing editor and analyst, Neil Milner, today offers a unique perspective on this. He once held a job as an ombudsman. Hi. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, uh, tell us. Uh, this is, you know, based on your experience, you see what's important here. Well, for sure. I worked as an ombudsman, but not with the population that John McDermott, who has been the state ombudsman for long-term care, I think from the beginning, has to deal with, which is people who live in long-term care facilities, which is about as hard a job as you can get. The law required, there's a federal law that requires that all states have an ombudsman for long-term care. there's also some staffing requirements which have not been met here almost from the beginning. And what got me back interested in this is Civil Beat ran a piece that reminded everybody that the state legislature is continue, is considering adding a someone to the ombuds staff for neighbor islands. They've never been there never really been one like that and what they've relied on is volunteers who've learned to do the work. That's it's it's hard work, it's rewarding work, but it's volunteer work. And I know that the Ombudsman, uh, the state ombudsman for long-term care, really has felt besieged for a long time. So that's where it stands now. And what a long-term care ombudsman does is really to investigate without formal powers to change things, to investigate, to try to work out things, and to try to help people understand what their rights are. Now, here's what the real challenge is for this kind of work in long-term care you're often dealing with people who really don't understand very well that are going on or may literally be in a coma. Um, and so you, these whole questions of representation. When I was at the university, I had to deal with a lot of people who were upset and not always aware of what was going on, but that's a piece of cake compared to this kind of thing. You have to deal with the families, and you're operating in a regime that has more laws on paper and rules on paper than it has, in fact, partly because there really hasn't been the political will to enforce them here. But the other part of it, if you think of the logic of being in a place that's pretty custodial um, and that relies on the, the staff for lots of kind of things, including the staff to report violations, you can begin to see what the problem is. And even if you have a legal regime as there, you know, you can the nursing homes can lose their Medicare things. There's records of violation. The difference between when that happens and when someone is in crisis or someone is not getting treated properly or there is elder abuse, and there's certainly uh, examples of that here, is is huge. So you're talking about people in in that kind of surroundings, and the ombudsman has to fill those needs. Well, I, I think you know people just want to know. Who are you going to call? You know? Well, yeah. Well, the ombudsman will do two things. You can call the ombudsman, and there's a chance that that ombudsman will go in and try to work out a situation. And lots of times, an ombudsman is going into a situation where people are not all that interested in being investigated. Um, and you have to use verbal sk- – I mean, it's essentially being there. Uh, so – uh, you know, so, so that's a very important, uh, a very important part of it. The other thing that an ombudsman does is to give you information. Who you call? You want to, you want to know more about what nursing homes are around, what long-term care facilities are around. There's a list. Here's how you get it. That's, that's routine, and that doesn't take long. It's the rest of this stuff that does. Right, and so but you just kind of wonder, yeah, are the folks on the neighbor islands getting the short shift? Well, they're getting short shift, and some of the worst uh, long-term care facilities, if you look at uh, caregivers. Uh, what is it? Caregivers.org. There's a list of stuff. For, it is um, is uh, some of the worst are there, um, and they tend to be smaller. They, they tend to be they're more isolated. And um, if you look at what some of the volunteers said in their comments to the Civil Beat article, 
you get a sense of what the work is like because these volunteers say it's it's about time we got someone in this. This stuff is really hard. It would give me nightmares, and I've done it for years. So I think that's, you know, without without even getting into heroes and villains and things like that, that's what the work requires. That's what it's like. And you, it's, it's certainly more labor-intensive than having one person, you know, in downtown uh, Honolulu having to cover everything for the state. Well, and I think with this pandemic, right, where there was just more isolation, where family members couldn't go visit their loved ones, and, you know, with the different restrictions, it's like, okay, well, if you've got three people in your room, there's no way you can see them. And and, and so a lot of things go unchecked. You don't know if they're uh, giving the patients, you know, uh, an overdose on drugs just to keep them That's exactly right. And you find, you know, you find that out. Uh, Things like there was a case in Hawaii it's not typical, but we're not talking about typical. We're talking about serious, where the person was was located too far from the table to eat, and they didn't catch this for long periods of time. So it's it it really is is that kind of stuff. COVID certainly threw a monkey wrench into all of this. You know, we know that some of the first cases were these horrible mass deaths in in nursing homes. I think. There's a lot to be learned yet about uh, about you know when we go back and look at COVID and nursing homes about who did well and who didn't do well. But it was it, it, it imagine being locked down in a situation where you're not even aware of what the disease is about for a while. I mean that's what it was like for a while. Yeah, and so you, yeah you you just hope that somebody is going to speak up on your behalf. Well, that's right. And somebody, if you're lucky, does speak up on your behalf. If you have a staff that's attentive or doesn't have trouble, if you've got family that's there for you that that does this, um, if you can speak for yourself, trust me, I've spent time in these. There's plenty of elder, there's plenty of elderly person, I'm an elderly person, who speaks up very well for themselves. I mean, there's, you know, there's there's a group that I know not in this state that took the administration to court. Not because there was health violations. They didn't like the way the money was being spent. And they they worked. But we're talking about people who are, you know, often vulnerable um, and to understand isolated. Isolation is one of the – and so that's that's the challenge that they have. And so if you have any doubt that they need another person to, to do this – in addition to the staff now and in addition to what I assume will still be volunteers, you shouldn't have that doubt. Right. So we, at least we've got some legislation that's making its way through a uh, session. And yes. And hopefully lawmakers will do the right thing. And it sounds like the hostility that's existed in the past between some legislators and some of the care homes and the Ahmed's office has been overcome enough to add this. This plus the fact that there's more money around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, – yeah, still one of those issues uh, that the pandemic has just highlighted. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's, it's hard to ignore. Well, and it's hard to ignore because it's not an issue that's going to go away because the pandemic will certainly recycle. But because it depend, it's just the, what COVID shows is just an exaggerated graphic dynamic of, how, of what can go on in these places when there's a crisis. In that case, the crisis came initially from the outside. Lots of times the crisis is from inside with the staff. Okay. Well, UH no longer has the ombudsman's office. No, no UH no longer has it. It was a great ride. It was, it's very interesting work. Um, but it's, it, my work was a walk in the park compared to what the ombuds for long-term care has to do. Okay. Well, you need to give uh, credit where credit's due and oh, the yes. difficult work uh, that they deal with every day. But thank you so much, Neil. You're welcome. Take care. That was political science professor Emeritus Neil Milner with our biweekly segment that we call The Long View. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. You know, we're in the forest 
training our gaze on a hardy game bird commonly found on the Big Island, Maui, and Oahu. First introduced in the 60s, the bird's breeding system has undergone a radical change in the islands. University at Hawaii Hilo professor Patrick Hart fills us in on the polygamous, yes, polygamous, college pheasant. And mahalo to the Makale Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology for the college's calls heard in today's Mono Minute. Kalish pheasants are native to the mountains of southern Asia and were introduced to the Pu'uva'ava'a area on the island of Hawaii in 1962. Since then, these game birds have become very common in all forests up to about 7,000 feet in elevation on the Big Island and now can even be found in the Waianais on Oahu and Haleakala on Maui. Male Kalish are glossy blue-black with a bright red mask on their face, a white crest of feathers on their head, and a long tail. Females have similar features but are mostly brown instead of black. The loud calls of these birds are very distinctive and sound a bit like the grunts and squeals of pigs. Kalij love to feed on fruits of a variety of plant species and unfortunately are known to spread invasive plants such as banana polka, strawberry guava, and clydemia into our native forests, with many of these species outcompeting the native plants over time. Kalish pheasants are known to be monogamous in Asia, but in Hawaii, recent studies have shown that their breeding system has changed to polygamy, with one female forming long-term bonds with up to six males. These males all cooperatively help the female at the nest, apparently because there's now so many Kalish in our forests that there just aren't enough available territories for them to be monogamous anymore. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Dr. Mike and Sharon Scott for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about giving at friendsofhakalauforest.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Marie-Rose Fonley, filmmaker and author of Talking Story. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the quest to preserve ancient spiritual and healing traditions. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the exhibit Treasures of Devotion, Human Connection in Secular and Sacred Art, featuring works from the museum's permanent collection, honolulumuseum.org. You know, COVID has taught us many things over the last two years. It further exposed our reliance on imported food and refueled our focus on the importance of growing food locally and supporting Hawaii farmers. To that end, at the start of the 2021 legislative session, groups gave out some 10,000 kalo starts. The Conversations Lillian Song took the opportunity to check in with one Oahu farmer on the windward side. Hanali Bishop is the owner of Homestead Poi and a 12-acre taro farm. He shared what he believes are the basic elements needed for self-sufficiency. Taro needs the most pristine of all the elements. Good, clean soil, cold, swift-moving, swift-flowing water, clear sky, bright sun, clean air, the fire that is your heart to be responsible for it, you know? And when you think about it that way, you know, if you're going to farm taro, then it's almost like you're taking responsibility for all of those elements too, you know? And, and it comes with that to actually say, we're going to take care of this place, this water, this land, this air, and ourselves. We're walking past, what kind of color is this? Oh, there's, there's about three or four different kinds in here, actually. Palehua, um, Moikea, Lihilihi Molina, 
and you'll see that running throughout. Some will have a little more than others, but generally we like to plant a certain percentage. This being a semi-commercial farm as well, you know, even though it's a small-scale one, we'll try to plant almost like your recipe, right? That how come there was this dry color patch? Is mm-hmm. that a variety or is it a process? Uh, so basically, because we're farming organically, everything's on a big rotation. And you can see the, the wetted fields are the more mature taro. And oftentimes when you plant a fresh field, sometimes you want to keep the water as low as possible just so that the new huli doesn't drown. Huli is, the, is really your seed. It's the cutting of the taro that's going to get replanted. Sometimes the new leaves that come out, and usually it's the first three to five leaves or so, you really want to keep an eye on. And, you know, sometimes if the water is too deep and the new leaf comes out, uh, if it touches the water, the water can actually rot it in that spot and then draw it under, you know. And the way it works is the taro will, starts off as a cutting or huli. You watch the leaves and the leaf sign will tell you when it's ready to reflood again to its depth. And then the taro will grow up big and tall, big and strong, and then as it shrinks down, it produces corn, and the taro oha start to come off the sides, you know, and then usually that's what's planted on. You know? And you just watch the plant as it shrinks down and shrinks down and shrinks down, the corn will grow. You know, when it gets a little loose in the ground, it's letting you know that it's almost ready to pull. You know, you can even watch the stem, and it's almost like birth, you know, like, like the stem, when the stem is wide, the corn will actually be pretty small. And when the stem shrinks down, that means the, the taro underneath is, has formed. With taro, whatever you believe will happen, will happen. And if you believe that it'll grow strong, it will. Same as any seed. Same as any idea or goal that you have. You know, I grew up in Ka'alaya. Uh, I went to Waihole Elementary School in the early 90s during the Waihole water struggle. And, you know, the Rapun brothers, taro farmers and oil makers as well, were key figures in that movement. And as a kid, you know, I remember that whole struggle. You know, we would hold hands in front of the gate in an effort to keep the um, water being diverted to the leeward side. That's kind of what got us the exposure towards water rights and, you know, the importance of water as a resource and as a, an important element for our, our life force even. When I turned around 18 years old, Uncle Paul, he, I remember one day I was up at Malkaloi and he pointed his finger at me and he said, you want a job, show up at the Waihole Poi factory tomorrow, you know? And I went and from the age of like 18 till about 26, I worked with him off and on at the Waihole Poi factory. And then when I was 26 years old, in 2009, uh, I quit my job as a full-time land surveyor and uh, just started working up here with my father on this farm. By 2010, opened Homestead Poi. So we still operate out of the factory that Uncle Paul and Uncle Charlie built up in Waiohole. Is it also then for other farmers like you, smaller farmers, you all kind of are able to then sell through? There's actually three entities that make poi now. There's the Waiohole Poi factory, which is a restaurant now. And then up on the farm... There's Uncle Paul them, Auntie Lori, and then myself. And we all have our own accounts and clients and all sorts. And the beauty of it really is kind of a cooperative when you think about it. Like if I don't have the taro or I'm not going to make poi that week and I can't take a luau order, I'll hand it to them and vice versa. And when you think about it, it's actually a really good system. Instead of competing with each other, we're working together to get a good product out and keep each other in business, you know. So this upcoming festival? Oh, yeah. So I got approached by Key Project to see if we could help co-collaborate on a small get-together at Key Project in Waihe'e. And, you know, Key Project is just this community center. And it's going to be kind of like in conjunction with this youth program they have and in part a ho'ike with them. I thought it was a great idea. We've done it in the past. And even when I was growing up in Waiahole, one of the things during the water rights struggle was there were taro festivals back then. There was a handful of them right here at Waihola Elementary School. And when I was a kid, we had a blast being part of them. And even the school was a part of it. And so for me, you know, I've 
I've grown up as a product of all of these things. You know, water rights, community, taro farms, grassroots restorations of farms, and, you know, a point maker. And now, you know, kind of an owner and operator of a small farm operation, poi operation myself. And, you know, when we sat down and we talked about it, you know, even though the idea was to just try and keep it small with things only just reopening, the decision was kind of unanimous that it's a good time, especially with everything going on in the world and even the water situation going on with the Red Hill fuel contamination. That was definitely brought up. And, and so that's why we even had the idea of bringing a poet in who would do an original piece about the importance of water, you know. It's open to the public. And there will be free huli. There'll be a select group of vendors. And even the musicians that are coming are all, in a way, kind of connected to this, this same... You know, like, I would say that um, the musicians we selected, their involvement in both worlds is almost like hand-in-hand, hand, you know, like Kevin Chang and um, Dean Wilhelm, who's just a remarkable farmer and musician... So talented in both worlds, and I always, I've always looked up to him. And Rainbow Uli'i, incredible falsetto singer, the Kahalu Ukulele Band. And a lot of the vendors were kind of selected, and the idea was to try and keep it localized with people from around here, you know, artists even, and other point makers, Kako'o Oivi, Paipaiohe Eia, Papahana Kuola, Makahiapo Cashman. It's a developing cooperative, really, when you think about it, and... When we did a, a tarot festival, before everything shut down, we did one in two, 2019, and the turnout was great, and much greater than we anticipated. And it was really because of the support that all the organizations have right now. And, you know, we put the call out, and everybody showed up, and we're like, wow, all right, you know. And this is also going to relaunch a Kalo Park, kind of like a community park, for people to go and learn how to farm taro. It all goes back to, you know, for myself growing up, who would I be without these resources? So what were you doing during COVID? How did it affect you? Hmm. It got real. It got real, man. And I guess that is another good reason for this taro festival and for, you know, for people to be gardening and home gardening because it got pretty real you know we got to see what it's like when things shut down and, and when you get tested to to such a level that like where is your food going to come from if things got really 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 bad you know because the shelves are empty for a little while and people were worried what's unfortunate is that as things get back to normal i hope people don't forget that farmers worked very hard during that time and not just that we worked really hard Every single channel that we had to offload our produce to people was also almost cut. The whole system was, was more or less severed for a little while. And we, we had to get creative. We had to work extra hard. You know, I was lucky to, to have gotten a couple of grants uh, to help me. You know, and I did pop-up markets. I did roadside. We did home deliveries. We did... Everything we had to to kind of answer the call of people who wanted to connect more with the local food sources. And, you know, if we can continue on that path of strengthening it, you know, it'll serve us better in the long run. And, you know, it'll just be better for all of us, uh, Hawaii as a whole. And my hope, too, is that people explore the home gardening. And there's so many good things that you can grow. Why not start with the towel? So what COVID did show us that instead of growing flowers, it then behooved people to actually grow food. Mm -hmm. But is kalo a crop where just anybody can do it? Seems like one of those specialty crops that's a little daunting. It can be. Um, any Growing anything can be daunting. I don't have that much water. Is there like dry land taro? What else could I do to be more sustainable in feeding my family? Firstly, yeah, it can grow dry land. Like I said, it's the taro is, like this time last year, a devastating flood came through this farm. And majority of these taro patches were completely flattened. Completely flattened. And the taro stands back up. And I couldn't really grow any other crops in these fields, especially when you're farming wetlands, even up Malka or, or down by the ocean. A lot of times, especially where water is so abundant, 
it does come with floods and all those other things that kind of balance out days like this where it's clear sky and, and you know, and you'll still get a crop, you know, and the tower will stand back up and, and you look at that and it, and it brings you so much hope, like, wow, you know, it is a very forgiving crop and it's very hardy. Um, all farming, all gardening, it's just a reflection of, of yourself at such a deep level that that you just will learn so much about who you are. And that was tarot farmer Hunali Bishop talking with HPR's Lillian Song about the important role that traditional kalo cultivation has in helping our island state work towards self-sustainability. Bishop is the owner of Homestead Poi and one of the coordinators of the Key Project Kalo Festival happening in Kahalu this Saturday from 9 a.m. until 2. Tomorrow, we plan to talk about cybersecurity. It's a call-in show. Got questions or comments? Call the Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR. And email works to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Want to listen back to something you've heard? Find our shows archived online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.